0: You know, the, the great thing, I, I do want to say, Cynthia's back there on the sound, and our sound techs, uh, it is a lot of work to do what they do, and often we don't acknowledge them unless something goes wrong, right? <laughs> because when everything goes right, you don't notice that they're back there, right? Because they do their job so well, uh, and, and so we are so thankful for them, and there's there's a lot of work, because they have to come to practice. There's a lot of things, a lot of moving parts to make this happen, and so... Uh, well, if you have your Bibles with you, turn with me to second Corinthians chapter two. Um, and before I read that that text in second Corinthians chapter two, uh, I just want to mention uh, just remind us of a couple things and as I've been going through er, preaching this sun, summer, I've been going through the book of second Corinthians, and we're just going to scratch the surface and, and then the summer's going to be over, so we're not going to get all the way through it, uh, but we're just going to do some key passages and uh, so just a couple reminders. So the the Corinthian Church, the uh, Corinth itself, actually, if you remember a few weeks or a few months ago, a month ago or so, I mentioned that Corinth was like a, it's like a modern sort of boomtown. Like it is a it is a place that was booming with life. Uh, it had ports on each side of it, uh, and it, it was a commerce center, and was really on the rise. And so everyone who wanted to make it big, make a name for themselves, get rich. Uh, do really well, they moved to Corinth at that time, like it was the place. So I I connected it with uh, sort of the western expansion, when the western expansion happened in the United States, the big cities like Chicago, and maybe we could throw Denver in there, and certainly San Francisco and L.A. and even Seattle and Portland, and these these big port cities that were major centers of commerce. People were flocking to these places uh, for, for the reason of getting rich, getting a name for themselves, but also because the nightlife was really good. Let's just be honest, like it was a party place, there was a lot happening, there was tons of entertainment, they had a huge amphitheater in, uh, that was very famous in Corinth, and it was, it was just teeming with life. Um, and so it was in that kind of culture, sort of the self-made, uh, self-centered kind of person uh, there that Paul brings the gospel to them, and not, not without some trials But Paul brings the gospel to Corinth, and he shares the gospel with them, and they come to Christ, and that's how the Corinthian church came up. And so, as we know, however, this church that Paul sacrificed much to plant and to start, uh, this church was now sort of turning against him, and it was sort of troubling and just sort of confusing I'm imagining to Paul but this church that was that was he sacrificed much now was actually had a whole list of of sort of accusations and charges against him and they were they were sort of lobbing these arrows at Paul which led to some pretty significant exchanges some of which were very uh, difficult and so we've been going through some of that little laundry list of their uh, their accusations against Paul now I want to say this one of the things I did not mention several a, a month or so ago was the fact that most likely the the cause or the source of this little conflict that Paul had, this tenuous relationship, was some leaders, some false leaders who had come into the church. It was sort of these these really polished rhetoricians who basically brought their their other worldview out here, their business life, they brought it into the church, and they began most likely to stir up the Corinthians to go, look, this Paul guy... Who is he really? Like, he doesn't look very good. He looks a little beat up, because he actually was. Uh, he doesn't talk as good as, you know, we talk. Like, he's not as sharp of a speaker. And so they were really, he, he, he says yes and no at the same time. No, he speaks out of both sides of his mouth, like this Paul guy. And so most likely, they were the ones sort of fueling this little, these little feuds that were going on with Paul. And so then I want to just say this, before we dive into this text, is that... It would be tempting to go then, the 2 the Corinthians was actually written for Paul to be able to defend himself, right? Somebody is falsely accusing him of stuff, and so Paul is not very happy about it, and he's going to make sure that he sets the record straight. But that's really not what Paul's doing. Uh, that would be far too simplistic. Uh, Paul is actually, there's something far greater at stake in this for Paul. In fact, we know that's not Paul's aim uh, first and foremost. It's a byproduct, no doubt. But first and foremost, Paul, Paul, that's not his aim. The reason why we know that is because Paul even says in 1 Corinthians, he says, you, Corinthians, are not my judge. God is my judge. You don't get the ultimate say. Not because he's not accountable at all to his brothers and sisters in Corinth. No, that's not what he's saying. But he's saying the final judgment of my ministry and my life doesn't rest with you. It's with God. I will stand before him. He will be the one to whom I will give an account. And before God, Paul says, my conscience is clear. Right? In other words, I've acted in every way uh, with integrity towards you Corinthians. And so Paul's not trying to somehow go, hey, wait, you've got it wrong. Let me just help you understand. Paul is answering their charges because the gospel is at stake. Because their testimony in the community is at stake. Because unity amongst brothers and sisters is absolutely crucial for the gospel to be spread, to be represented well in the community. And so there's far bigger things at stake than just Paul's ego kind of going like, oh, come on, man, they're they're falsely accused me. I I need to speak up on my behalf. That's not Paul's ultimate aim. It's so that the gospel would be proclaimed well in Corinth and that this church's integrity and the the, the integrity of the gospel would be represented well so that's what's going on here so today's passage and I'll just say before I read it um, it's somewhat of a humbling text in so many ways Uh, when you read commentaries about verse 14 that we're going to read here in a minute uh, many of uh, old I call them the old dead guys and gals who have written about these things uh, they 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 would say uh, people that I really read a lot and respect uh, they would say this is one of the most beautiful verses in all of Scripture. And, uh, and I think we're going to see why today, but I hope. Because, but it's a little humbling to go, they're saying this about this text, and I'm supposed to talk about it today. I feel a little bit out of place, but we'll see how we can do uh, today. Let's stand as we read God's Word. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12 is where we'll start. We're going to go 12 to 17 this morning. And we stand because this is not my words, but these are God's words. And it just helps us to, as a way of even posture, just to honor God and His word as we read it. Hear the word of God this morning. When I came to Troas to speak the, the gospel of Christ, to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was open for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and I went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, the fragrance from death to death. To the other, the fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many Peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we need your strength today. We need your spirit to help me in speaking and us in listening together to your word to grow, to be strengthened, to be challenged to be encouraged, to gain a a picture of what this life of discipleship looks like and, and, and is like. To gain a picture of what it means to truly represent you in this world that desperately, desperately needs you. And Lord, we need you to show us all the more, every time we come to this letter, that it really is in weakness, our weakness, that you are strong. And so God, would you teach us today and instruct your church that we might be encouraged, that we might be strengthened, that we might be faithful witnesses to you in this world, and we pray in Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. You can be seated. Paul begins in verse 12, saying that he he came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, so this was his intent, and this, at this moment he's picking this, this spot up. He says, I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, and then he says, even though a door was opened for me in the Lord. We'll just pause right there for a minute. A door was opened for me in the Lord. So if we were to have a, an English or really a Greek lesson this morning, uh, this, is a, this is what we call a passive voice. Uh, that a door was opened for me in the Lord. It, it's a it's a, perfect, um, a perfect tense and a passive voice, meaning, meaning that Paul has absolutely nothing to do with the mission field in the sense of w- whether or not the door is open to the gospel, right? God is the one who orchestrates the mission field. God is the one who opens up doors. God is the one who pr- provides the opportunity, tills up the soil, and our job is simply to join God in what he's doing, right? That's, that is literally the life of a disciple. We are not the ones who figure it all out. We're not the ones who open doors. We are simply the ones who discern where God is at work, and we join him there. He's the one that does the work. And this is what Paul's saying. He says, God had opened up a door for me in Troas meaning that fruitful ministry was happening there because God was already at work there, right? So fruitful things were happening. Paul and his companions, they joined God there, and I'm assuming that there is, there is people giving their lives to Jesus as a result of the, the teaching of the gospel and the sharing of the gospel throughout the streets of Troas. This is what's happening. And so it makes it interesting that Paul would say, even though... Even though God had opened up this, the door for the gospel in Troas, even though he says something interesting here. He says, um, got to get to the right spot. My eyes, see, yeah, I need my glasses, my wife would say. Uh, he says, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So fruitful gospel ministry is happening, but Paul is troubled. Paul's spirit is not at rest, meaning he is anxious, he is burdened, he is wrestling. And I want us just to pause there for a minute because we we do have a tendency sometimes to read these characters, about these characters in Scripture, and to put them way up here and us down here. As if these are not real human beings who have real bouts of of faithlessness and real struggles with trusting God and real wrestlings with the things that are going on. Paul was a human being. He was a man, just like any of us, and he was struggling. So God had opened up this huge door for ministry, but Paul, Paul, in one sense, because of his troubled spirit, just couldn't even, couldn't even join God in it. Isn't that crazy? And that, that's a serious thing for us to see. And he says the reason why is because he didn't find Titus there. He expected Titus to be there. Why does that matter? Because Paul was expecting Titus to come back from Corinth where he had this tenuous relationship going on. He's trying to repair things and and repair and restore and reconcile this relationship with the Corinthians. And Titus was in Corinth and he was supposed to bring back word to Paul of how things are going there. And all Paul has on his mind while he's in a mission field in which God has opened up the doors wide is his burden for the Corinthian church. And his anxiety over whether or not they're doing well or not doing well, right? So I call it Paul's pastoral anxiety. It's just what it is, right? He's he's anxious and he is burdened and he's weighed down by this. And I want you to see in this passage, I think we can learn something in this passage. Um and he, he actually leaves the mission field, by the way. He took leave of them. Now I'm assuming that means he left his companions there. It's not as though they just abandoned ship, but Paul did. He left, and he went to Macedonia to go find Titus. In fact, I wonder, this is just speculation, but I, I think it's a, a good speculation. If there could be one. Um, I, wonder, I wonder if we were to ask Paul, after this whole thing is done, if he felt like that was a good thing for him to leave Troas because of his anxiety, his, his restlessness, about the Corinthians, if that would be a good, if he would say that would be a good, that was a good move. I just have a feeling he wouldn't say that. I have a feeling he would say, no, that maybe wasn't the best move, but that's where he was at. That was the reality of where he was at. He was burdened to the point where he couldn't, he couldn't focus on the mission field, and he took leave to go find Titus, right? It's just the reality of it, I think what we see here is that this is why I think Paul talks in many of his letters about the fact that as Christians we need to fight hard for unity, right? We need to fight hard to be unified and when I say unity, I don't mean uniformity, that we all think the same way about every single thing, but we just read the Apostles' Creed, right? And the Apostles' Creed is is way back in the days, they put such a thing together to be a succinct and uh, clear uh... concise summary of the christian faith of what it means to be a christian that that these are the essential things that if we don't agree upon those things then we, then we actually aren't brothers and sisters right but those are the things that really matter it's not those things plus a whole host of other things right we don't add on to those things those are the things that are crucial and obviously those things have bigger doctrinal things behind them and much more but um, Paul is constantly saying we need to fight hard. We need to er, work earnestly for the unity of the faith because it's absolutely crucial because when we are not in unity, it actually disrupts the mission, right? That's the reality. Like there's things at stake in our unity. When When we are not together in the things that matter, it actually affects the mission of the church. And I think this is something we can see in Paul's life, that 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 conflict he had with Corinth was distracting him to where he actually left an open door, which doesn't sound like Paul, right? He planted a third of the churches in the New uh, wrote a third of the books in the New Testament and planted most of the churches. It doesn't sound like him, but that's how difficult this conflict was to him. So he goes to Macedonia. In fact, if you just turn with me for a moment over to chapter 7. and verse 5, Paul says this. He says, For even when we came into Macedonia... Listen to this, Our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without, so there was outside pressures, and fear within. So Paul's has fear within, and then verse six. But God I love this, especially in light of our message on comfort, but God who comforts the downcast, comforted us by coming by the coming of Titus. God sees, he went to Macedonia, and he found Titus. And, and Paul sees this as the comfort of God. God knew, see, God loves us, right? God is not sitting here going, come on, Paul, pick up the pace here, buddy. Why, what are you leaving Troas for? I opened the door. God's not chastising him for this. God provides comfort that he knew Paul needed. He, he, sends, he sends Titus. And Paul sees this as the comfort of God who comforts the downcast. And then he says, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which we, he was comforted by you, as he told us of your longing, this is the, their longing for Paul, their, of your mourning, that is their grieving as well, this, this disunity, which is so encouraging, and your zeal for me, so that I rejoice still the more. So this is the news Paul's waiting for, right? And God provides it at the right time. At the right time. God provides it through the coming of Titus. He doesn't seem to chastise Paul for for struggling in his faith to trust God with the details of Corinth. No, God sends comfort. And the comfort just happens to be Titus. Um, So we come back to our text and we see this significant uh, reality of conflict and disunity and how it disrupts the mission field. But now, Paul's going to now turn. Even in light of this, before chapter 7, Paul's now going to turn, and, and Paul's going to say, he's going he's to give this incredible picture of the Christian life. He's going to turn and give thanks to God, and he's going to basically give us two pictures here. And so, in, in doing so, look at verse 12, or look at verse 14, I mean. He says in this incredible passage, he says, But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. Let me just read it again. But thanks be to God, right, who in Christ always, notice the word always there. I think that's beautiful. Here's what God is always doing, Paul says. This is what he is always doing in Paul's life and his companion's life, and in the Corinthians' life, and all the way down to our lives. God is, in Christ, always leading us in triumphal procession, and through us, he is spreading everywhere, I love these words, the fragrance of the knowledge of him. I think that Paul uses this language a lot more than we give him credit, but Paul is in essence is saying it's not just, it's not just what you know that's important. It's not even, it's not even just your good teaching that is what actually attracts people to Jesus. Paul says this oftentimes, he puts this little, these little language in there. He says it's the fragrance of the knowledge of him. He puts something in there that actually talks about the senses. It's more than simply propositional things, right? Those things are absolutely crucial. Doctrinal, deep, rich truth of the gospel is absolutely essential. But it's it's not the only thing. It's, It's the fragrance of your life that represents the reality of those deep truths, right? And so Paul is saying that it's the the fragrance, like God through us is spreading everywhere, the fragrance, there's a smell, a reality to these truths that we believe, that he's spreading everywhere. You could ask, maybe the point of the sermon today is to go, how do you smell this morning? (laughs) Right? What's the fragrance of your life? Do you smell like Jesus? Right? If, if, is there, when you come in contact with people, do they, do they stop and take note and go, hmm, what's, there's something about this person, right? It's like, it's like being in a crowd, and that person walks by who has way too much cologne on, right? And you just literally pause and go, what was that? <laughs> like, now you don't want it to be like off-putting, I'm just saying, but, but I don't think that's what Paul's saying, but, But I love that passage. He's saying that that this is what God is always doing. Now let me let me pause for a minute. Um, Paul's actually, let me give you a little background. Paul Paul's drawing from a picture here. And the picture is the the Roman, when a Roman general or king would be triumphant in battle, they would, they would, when they came back home having been victorious. They would, it wasn't just like they came home, went to bed, slept it off, and you'll know, get back up the next day. No, no, no. It was a huge procession. When they got to the, the main road going through the town, there was a massive celebration that went on. They would, they would go in a, a triumphal procession. The king in his chariot with his purple toga on, and it was a hu- the Romans did it well. Like they they had in tow all the spoils of their victories, the gold, the silver. They had all their soldiers coming down the streets. The people came out. The priests were burning incense. There was this incredible aroma in the air. Everyone was cheering and chanting and celebrating. It was incredible. And then they had the captives. They had all the, the captives from kings and generals and soldiers that they had conquered. And those captives were usually led down in the ceremony. And at the end of the street, at the end of the procession, several of them, and if not all of them, would be put to death. And it was a way of just showing that our king conquers. Our king has overcome his enemies. And we have been victorious. Now, This is what Paul's drawing from in this picture. Um, Have you ever heard of a plot twist? (laughs) Right? I love plot twists. Um, When you read something and all of a sudden you think it's one thing, and then you find out it's totally another. Or you're watching your favorite movie, right, and you think it's this, and all of a sudden, your favorite character dies, and you're like, the whole thing's off, right? Just forget it, I'm done. Where do we go from here, right? You ever had those things? it's very tempting in this passage, and I, I think I've been there as well. When you look at this passage to go, I can just imagine we're the foot soldiers, right? We are the army of God, and we're the foot soldiers in, the, in, the, in this procession. We're with our king and our general, and we are marching with him. We, people are chanting, you know, Corinth, Corinth. like They're coming down the street, and we are just chest pumped out because we have conquered the enemies with our great king. But that's not what Paul's saying. Here, here's an interesting plot twist. The things of God's kingdom usually turns everything up on its head to what you think. We are not the foot soldiers in this little procession. Paul turns the whole analogy around. We're the captives. We're the captives being led that the king has conquered, and we're being paraded through the streets. It feels like the mood just dampened a bit, right? (laughs) It felt better when we were the foot soldiers, right? But we're actually the captives here. And just in case you think that's crazy, let's turn back for a minute to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Listen to how Paul, and this is just one place, there's several. Listen to how Paul describes he and the apostles. Look at verse 8. We're going to go ahead and start with verse 8. Paul says, now, I want you just to note here in verse 8, Paul uses sarcasm like nobody else. And he uses, he uses it to confront them, right? Just in case you wonder, like sarcasm is in the Bible all over the place. But Paul uses it here really well. And so listen to how he talks to these Corinthians. Now, again, this is 1 Corinthians, and he's confronting them on a whole lot of their attitude about some stuff that's going on in the church. And so Paul says, already you have all you want. In other words, you're, you're totally content. you got everything totally self-sufficient. He's being facetious here. He's being sarcastic. He says, already you've become rich. And without us even, like you don't even need us, you've become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share in that rule with you. He's totally being sarcastic here, right? He's totally going, yeah, you guys are amazing. You're right. Even without, you don't need us. You got it all figured out. You know, it's, You've had this conversation with your kids in your home before, right? Right? All of 10, 12 years of experience. uh, I'm sorry, kids, but, you know, sharing with mom and dad, what's up, right? And uh, and you're kind of like, yeah, you're right. You got this all figured out, you know, go for it, right? Um, That's what Paul's doing here. But listen to how he describes himself. Now, I want you to note why this is such a crucial picture that Paul wants to give them. By the way... There are pictures in the Bible of us being soldiers, right? It's, it's not as though that doesn't exist as well. But Paul's giving them a picture of the Christian life that I think confronts their very comfortable, wealthy, this is a very wealthy church, their comfortable lives. He's, he's poking at them and showing them a different picture of what a disciple looks like. Listen to what he says. Because in other words, he's comparing as well. He's saying, you guys have become rich, you're kings, but here's who we as apostles, here's who we are in Christ for I think that God has exhibited or in other words put us on display he's exhibited us apostles as last of all or you could even say least of all like men sentenced to death because we have become a spectacle to the world to angels and to men we are fools for Christ here's another sarcasm but you are wise He says, we are, we, we are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we, we, you know, small apostles, us in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed. We are buffeted, homeless, and we labor, working with our own hands. We are revi- when reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world and the refuse of all things. Verse 14, he says, I do not write these things, I don't think I put that up there, to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, not good ones in the church, by the way, you do not have many fathers. He says, for I have become your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. In other words, Paul's saying it was through... My ministry, that you became Christians. I'm like your spiritual father. And he says, I urge you then, be imitators of me. And what did he just describe? He didn't describe a triumphant, you know, foot soldier in the army. He described captives being led down the street, put on display. That even, and, and think about the picture here. And this is not a stretch because Paul talks about this a lot. He says in Romans chapter 6 that we were once slaves to righteousness, but now we are slaves, or we were once slaves to sin, but now through Christ we have been, we're now slaves to Christ, to righteousness, right? He, he talks about the fact that we have been taken captive by God. Like, so think about Paul's life. Here's Paul. Paul is terrorizing the church when he meets Jesus. Paul is literally the definition of a terrorist, he is he it is through paul he's going about through the countryside at the behest of the chief priests and teachers of the law to go to these little christian groups and sects and to get them thrown into jail to get them killed and to persecute them that's what paul's doing and he's on the damascus road having been given his marching orders he's going on the damascus road to go do much of the same and he meets jesus or jesus meets him And Jesus overcomes, conquers, the hardness and sinfulness of his heart. And Paul submits himself to Christ. That's the picture we have here. That that God in Christ overcomes our sinful, hard hearts. And we are then taken captive from being captive to our sin. We are now taken captive by Christ to do the will of God in our lives. And it is a glorious thing. Paul never looks back. It is a beautiful thing. And and so this is sort of the picture that we get. And not only that, you think about the dying at the end of the parade, I know that sounds really great, right? But the reality is we are continually, daily dying to ourselves, right? This is what we do. We are continually, daily dying to ourselves and our sinfulness and our, our selfishness, right? In order to live for Christ. And God, then, through our lives that he has overcome by the gospel, by the truth of the gospel, through the death of Jesus, he's overcome our sinfulness, he has t- brought us captive to, to do his will, Christ or God now, in Christ, is, is parading us through the world as the fragrance of the knowledge of him. Isn't that incredible? Like, that's the picture we have here. That, that God it, wants us to... To be seen and to be paraded, to be in a sense a spectacle, to be exhibited, to put on display who God really is. In fact, in a weird twist, all these images and pictures break down at some level, right? So just know that, like you can't can't piece it all together. But in a weird twist, it's like the captives are singing the praises of the king who conquers, right? That's like a weird twist to the whole thing. But that's the reality. Like, they're going, this is the best king ever. Like, you want to be his. You want to be taken over by him, right? That's every one of us sitting here who knows Jesus Christ this morning. Your heart was sinful and hardened against God, and his spirit overcame it through the beauty and the glory and the grace of God, overcame in Christ your hardness, and you decided. You said yes and amen. Right? And now God is just simply parading you through the world that you would just put off the odor of Jesus everywhere you go. And this is the follow-up of what he says in the next part here. He says in in 2 Corinthians, in verses 15 and 16, if I can get back here, verses 15 and 16, he says this. The second picture here is this picture of the aroma. He says, for we are the aroma of Christ. Notice this. It's the aroma of Christ to God. It's first and foremost to God. Think about the picture of this in the Old Testament, right? You remember the sweet-smelling aroma of the sacrifices that were made to God? And it says that these were a sweet-smelling aroma to God, pleasing to Him. It's the sacrifices of people coming to Him for, for, uh, for forgiveness, right? For his grace in their lives. And, and so first and foremost, our lives are a sacrifice given up to God. But that, that life is lived in the presence of this world. And so he says that we are the aroma of Christ to God first and foremost. But among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. In other words, we are the aroma of Christ, period. But that aroma is spread to everyone, right? Just like in verse 14. It's both to those who are believing in and trusting and open to the gospel, but it's also among those who are not believing in the gospel, in fact, are rejecting it, and every time you're in their presence, they hate it more, right? And so he's saying we are the aroma of Christ, period, both to those who are saved, being saved and to those who are perishing, those who are rejecting this message. But he doesn't stop there he says for to one with a fragrance from death to death and the other the fragrance from life to life to those who are being saved the aroma of your life as it smells like Jesus if you can just you're going to be imagining that today so what does it look like to smell like Jesus right the aroma of your life to one person is the it, it is it is absolute life giving right Um, I I could just think uh, of Gary Smith in my own life personally. Gary Smith was such a beautiful and is to this day such a beautiful picture of Jesus. Like, I am a punk, hardcore, hardened teenager at the age of 15 years old, and Gary pulls up to his home that he was renting across the street from my house, and I am the furthest thing from a church kid I haven't been to church in my whole life. And he pulls up in his moving van in front of my house, his house across the street. He gets out. I'm playing basketball. He walks across the street, and he starts playing basketball with me. Hi, my name is Gary. And he becomes my friend, comes to my house. Ends up, Gary is the youth pastor of the church that just the two houses over. And Gary spoke not long after that, well, few years, actually, Gary spoke one Sunday in church, and I was sitting with my girlfriend, whom I adored, didn't care about Jesus, but I cared about her, and Gary spoke that Sunday, and that's where I gave my life to Jesus, but he was a picture of Christ, just a beautiful, incredible person who put up with all of my just horribleness and just loved me for who I am, and there was something about him that I just couldn't shake. He just... He just had such a joy, such life in him. And, and yet his own story was just horrible, garbage. Like his, he grew up in terrible circumstances. If anybody had a reason to have a very miserable outlook on life, it was Gary. He had a terrible life. And yet Gary was the most joyful guy I knew. The most loving and kind and fun guy. It just blew me away. And he shared his story and that God used that to change my life what is our life we are the aroma of Christ to the people around us and to some it's life-giving but trust me there are some that it is not life-giving at all and that the aroma of your life that puts out this Jesus aroma is actually off-putting and angering and the more you love and I'm not going to say it on on television here I'm not on television but online because I this person might be watching (laughs) now they'll know. Um, I have a person in my life like that. The more I love them, the more kind I am to them, the more I just seek to just be there, and the more I sought to to work with them, the more angry, the more off-put they became. And to this day, the more I try, the more I love, the more angry they get. You maybe have those people in your life as well. And that's just the reality of it. That's, that's not your business. That's God's deal, right? We are the aroma of Christ to the perishing and to the saved, period. Right? That's our job. Just be the aroma of Christ. Paul's telling them in First Corinthians, saying, just, just imitate me. That's what I'm seeking to do. I'm seeking to imitate Jesus, to live like him, to love like him, to look like him, and to smell like him. That's what I'm seeking to do. So hey, do, as long as I'm doing that, be like me, right? That's what he's saying. We are the aroma of Christ either way. That's what our job is. And I love how Paul puts this where he's saying, this is, this is what God's always doing. This is what he's always doing. Every second of your life, you exist simply to put off the aroma of Jesus to everyone around you, including your wife, your husband, your kids, your, your st- staff workers at your job, wherever it is. This is what your job, this is what God's doing through you always everywhere and therefore Paul has a conclusion in light of that in light of that he says or because that's the case we are not then so he's gonna give a little exhortation here we are not like so many now this is a pretty pointed thing to these Corinthians because this is the these are the very leaders that are probably stirring up the pot in the Corinthian church against Paul which is hindering the gospel and he's probably pointedly poking at this he's saying for we are not like so many peddlers of God's Word peddlers in other words we we are not out for selfish and greedy gain. we are not using God's Word in order to in order to create a name for ourselves in order order simply to satisfy our own self-centered desires. And Paul says, like so many are doing. There's so many, he says. It's not just a few. He says, like so many, we're not peddlers of God's word. We're not trying to sell people something. It's something that's real. In fact, he says, but instead, as men of sincerity... Which means, Paul's saying, we're not peddling God's word, we actually really believe it. We actually really, truly believe it and embrace it. It is is absolutely the thing that impacts every aspect of our lives to the point where we actually can use the words like, we smell like Jesus, right? We it is, it is everything to us. So we're not peddling God's word. We actually truly and sincerely believe this word, and our lives are, are a display of the fact that we believe it, right? There's, he said we're getting rid of this inconsistency, right? The hypocrisy that we actually believe this, and our lives match that because we truly are living this out in front of people. We're not like hypocrites. He says, and we're doing so as commissioned by God, this is the great commission, right? This is what God sent us out to do and be. As commissioned by God. This is, this is his calling on our life. And so he says, in the sight of God, then we speak in Christ. So in the sight of God, I love how Paul says that. I think, I think that the reason why Paul says that, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ, is to just remind them once again that it's God who's going to judge our heart my ultimate accountability, not to you Corinthians, it's going to be to God one day. I will give an account to him fully for my life. And so he's reminding them, it's in God, in the sight of God, that we speak in Christ. It's in him that we do this ministry. So let me just, let me just ask you today, like, I don't know, in some ways this is like a simple passage, but it's not so simple, is it? (laughs) But it also reminds us of the whole theme of this book, is that it's strength and weakness. In essence, we need God. We cannot do this. In fact, I love what Paul says. Listen to these words. Uh, Go down to chapter three for just a moment. Or no, actually, actually go up at the end of verse 16. This is why Paul says, who is sufficient for these things? Who's sufficient? This is a rhetorical question by Paul. Who can do this? In other words, think think about the weight of this. He's not just saying, like, who can live the Christian life and who can be a good witness for Jesus. No, your life has consequences. The fragrance of your life is actually leading people to Jesus or pushing them away. Like, there are serious, eternal consequences to our lives. And so that's why he's going, like, in light of what God is actually doing through us that we're sometimes completely oblivious to, right? Right? Like, in light of the seriousness of what God is actually doing, he's spreading everywhere the fragrance of the knowledge of him through our lives. Paul says, who's actually sufficient for these things? I love that because Paul is the one saying it too. He said, none of us are sufficient for that. And then, and then look what Paul says, though. Paul comes back in chapter 3, and he's not arguing about this. He says in verse 4, such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God Verse 5, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. So who is sufficient for these things? Paul's answer, no one. But it's God who actually makes us sufficient. Like we can't claim anything is coming from us, including Troas, right? We'll go back to our beginning. Troas is not, it's not because we had such an incredible ministry strategy. We just crushed it, right? No, no, no. God opened up the door, we joined him in it, and lo and behold, when we join God in what he's up to, things happen, right? And, and so here Paul's saying, is, we can't claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God who has made us competent to be ministers of the new covenant. It's a beautiful reality. Part of that causes us to, to rest, just rest in the reality of that, that word, but I don't mean rest in the sense of being lazy. You go, well, God's doing this thing, so I don't gotta do anything, right? <laughs> that's not that's not what Paul did, right? If we're to imitate Paul, Paul all the more, in light of the fact that God's doing stuff, Paul was all the more eager to get after it, right? Because this is what God's doing, so I'm eager to join him in what he's doing because God will be successful. I'm gonna be on his team, right? It doesn't cause us to passivity It should call us to action, the fact that God is at work, and the fact that he, even when we feel we have nothing to offer, and maybe that's true, but in Christ, we have everything. We have everything we need. So when you feel like, ah, not me, Ah, that's not my thing, maybe it's exactly your thing. That's exactly what God wants to do through your life, to do things that you aren't sufficient to do, but he can make you sufficient. You aren't competent to do that, but he can make you competent. He can do it. He did it for Paul, the persecutor of the church. He can do it for you and for me and for every person here. So let us trust him today. Let us go out. Think about this next week. How is your life being the fragrance of Christ, the aroma of Christ everywhere uh, that people would be drawn to him? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your goodness and your grace. God, I pray that you would make your church, not just Timberline, but your church across this planet, that you would would cause us to be, truly be the aroma of Christ to this world. That we would look like, live like, talk like, smell like Jesus our neighbors and to our friends to our families to our co-workers and to the stranger at the grocery store in the gas station and on the street street corner on the airplane lord may we truly do through you what we cannot do ourselves and so lord um, make us competent to be ministers of this new covenant and we know that uh, we know that you will because your word says this is what you are doing in our lives always this is what you're doing And so cause us to trust you all the more for it. In Jesus' name, amen. I think one of the great pictures of the Christian life...